Episode of the Brothers Trek About. As always, I am Matt coming to you from Austin and from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. <laughs> Only if we're lucky. This week we are talking about one of the best well known episodes of the original series, Arena. Although there, I guess there are probably many of those. Uh, Although this has to stand out in the first tier. Of episodes that go to episodes where when people think, "What is Star Trek?" Yeah, when Kirk fights the Gorn, that's got to be in the in the top. Well, if you recall too, this is also uh, this fight with the Gorn is also the one that uh, Cisco mentions when they go back in trouble with Tribbles. He's like, "Man, I'd like to ask him about his fight with the Gorn." <laughs> so uh, it's really the it's really the only time we see the Gorn. And yet the Gorn really end up in the mythology as a kind of critical rival species. Well, it's funny, too, because I believe there's also a DS9 episode where they mention the, uh, the colonists on Cestus III as well. I looked that up. I saw that on Memory Alpha. That wasn't just my like, beautiful uh, remembrance of that. Uh, that I, I saw it on there. But, um, but yeah, so apparently some sort of relationship has been forged with the, uh, with the Gorn. So, uh, which would make sense. That's also very Star Trek, I think. A group of people that we started off by hating and ha- started hating us, who now we have uh, forged a relationship and everything is A-OK. So in Star Trek Online, the, the game, the Klingons are leading a coalition that includes the Gorn and a few other... You know, species that are you know familiar kind of at that level who are known for their violence and so uh we're gonna start off uh as always talking about some of the behind the scenes stuff that happened in this episode uh joseph pevney directed this episode this is the very first episode he directed uh he would go on to tie mark daniels for the most episodes of dire- uh directed of star trek uh each of them had 14 total in the run of Trek. So uh, that is quite a lot from this guy. What's really funny, too, about this episode is you think that here's the first episode directed by Joseph Pevney, who would go on to do many, as I just said. And this is also the first, like, fully scripted episode from Gene Kuhn. Um, We'll get to more about the scripting of this episode in a minute. But the point I was going to make was is that this was the most streamlined script written that from the from the moment draft one was written till the moment it hit filming. This is the fastest episode that they had uh, streamlined through that system. And then also, as far as shooting, uh, this is the first time in a long time that they actually had a director come in under the amount of days that they normally uh, normally film, only in six days which as is, opposed to seven. Which is why they invite him back, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, also uh, uh, under budget. So 
that is also Another reason cool. to bring this guy Yeah, back. exactly. Especially for this poor show. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes it's useful to remember that this is a business. And they've got budgets and they've got to meet targets. And guys who can do that are going to be more valuable than guys who may tell a 20% more fascinating story and go over budget and over time. And... By 1951, Joseph Pevney had already shot five movies for Universal, and his fifth one was called uh, Air Cadets with Rock, Hust- with Rock Hudson. Uh, his sixth picture was called The Strange Door with uh, Charles Lawton and Barless Korloff, uh, which uh, also, this is the movie that introdu- uh, introduced Boris Karloff to the horror genre, so that's interesting as well. And then uh, by, the, by the end of 52, uh, on loan to Paramount to director a, a Dean Martin Jerry Lewis movie called Three Ring Circus. Many years later, Universal uh, puts out Pevney's 25th directorial movie with uh, James Cagney and uh, Aslan Chaney in uh, the movie The Man with a Thousand Faces. So, you know, here's a guy who, like, again, just the pedigree, you know, that Star Trek keeps getting of all of these, like, amazing directors, of all these amazing behind-the-scenes people who are coming in. It's like... Again, you just look at that alone, and you're like, well, no wonder why this show has lasted 50 years, because you can still go yeah. back to it and be like, love this thing. This is amazing. His 31st directorial feature was Portrait of a Mobster, starring Vic Morrow and Leslie Parrish. But it's funny, because in 62 and 63, he decided he was going to go to television. So he started doing Ben Casey, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, which, by the way, one of his Alfred Hitchcock Presents show uh, also had a uh, featured guest player by the name of Walter Koenig. And it was Pevney who was responsible for casting uh, Mr. Uh, Koenig as Ensign Chekhov as well. So that's uh, there you go. That's pretty amazing. In 64, he took on nine episodes of Wagon Train, uh, 11 episodes of The Munsters, and, of course, it was here that he met Gene Kuhn. So... Gene said, hey, why don't we just bring this guy on uh, to direct this episode? It'll be perfect. Let's do it. So uh, that's how he then became part of the amazing uh, talent, directorial talent that uh, started doing Star Trek. So that's really cool. How much of this do you think is related to the fact that we still have the studio system? And so, you know, the the top level of talent hasn't gone on to become incredibly expensive and to a certain extent studio heads can still say hey we'd like you to do this project and top talent is like okay i'll do star trek um i think less so with tv i was gonna say what you're definitely right about the studio system being is because he did five movies in one year you know, I don't even, I mean, obviously movies are made very differently than they were back then where you had like six weeks and that was it. We edited it together and we put it out there. Now we have like special effects that take two years or whatever else you got to do. But then, you know, yeah, you, I mean, part of the reason he had all that experience was just because they're like, you're on contract, go make this movie. And he's like, okay, I guess I have to. I'm under contract. Uh, but I think as far as TV goes, I don't think, I don't think it ran that way, did it? Where there, where there was no, a... but but I do think there's still a, you know, one of the things that happens, and, and I'll make an analogy to to sports. Once the athletes start making some serious money, because the TV revenues start getting really high, right, and it begins to trickle down, and 
the athletes start making other demands. And before that, you know, you could say to an athlete, I want you to make a 25-city tour and sign autographs for the kids, and you're not going to get a dime. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. And you're like, yes, sir, Mr. You know, coach or baseball manager. Or I'll do it. Right. And, you know, once they're making, you know, multi-million dollar contracts, then they're, it's more like, you want me to go somewhere? What am I getting paid? Yep. You know, am I going to have green M&Ms? I want to stay at the Waldorf. You know, and they're like, okay, okay, okay. So how was that? Relating to Pevnu and the and the TV. Well, so when the people behind, you know, when when directors and screenwriters and and talent in general still think of themselves as, you know, when Universal says I'm making five pictures, I make five pictures, as opposed yeah. to I'm uh, I'm Spielberg. I do what I want. I come and go as I please. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I want to do this picture i'm doing this picture and try and stop me yeah and if i'm gonna take eight eight you know months to do it then i think there's just much more of a sense that we all have to work and we, we do the projects that come our way and we're grateful for the opportunity and that kind of disappears once you get so much money and people start getting kind of big-headed about what they're doing and do I want to do TV? I, TV's beneath me. Oh, I see what you're saying. <clears throat> so maybe people were coming to TV to get away from the studio system. That way they could work as much or as little as they want. Well, you know, just the idea that, you know, someone is going to be involved in a lot of different projects that are not of their design, and they're, they're working hard and they're working kind of every day, as opposed to mm -hmm. the... What are you working on? right? Well, I got a movie I'm going to make in about three years. And right now we're just, you know, thinking about it. And then, you know, at, at, we'll start shooting next year. We, you know, I've been talking to some actors and, you know, so-and-so may or not may be interested. We'll see how it works out. And, you know, these long schedules in which someone like a director is involved from the beginning and it's their project. And you know, I, I just can't imagine some of these guys today putting out the amount of projects. And as you say, we make movies differently. But, and, yeah. you know, I, I just find it hard to believe some of these guys would be doing this kind of work, especially when it's not their baby. Yeah. But I wonder how much of that, too, even in the studio system was their baby. Like, you know, hey, we got this yeah. hot young, you know, kid from Cincinnati. He wrote this script. Let's, uh, let's tomorrow. You're on it. Let's go. It, it, because everything was controlled by the studio. Right. There wasn't a sense that anything belongs to anybody except for the studio. Yeah. I got what you're saying. Why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell that behind-the-scenes story of, uh, the, uh, of uh, old Gene Kuhn writing up this episode. So, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Gene Kuhn writes the episode, and he's not aware of having borrowed any material or any ideas or so forth. And it gets submitted to the Kellum DeForest Research Agency, which handles all the Star Trek yeah, scripts. Yeah, talked about them before. And they say, you know what? This, uh, this is really similar to a story that was in a 1944 issue of Astounding named Arena by Frederick Brown. And so Desilu decides, well, we're not going to go to Brown and say, uh, we, we think we may have accidentally pilfered your idea. <laughs> Instead... 
they say, we'd like to do a treatment of your story for our television show. And Brown says, sure. They pay him the full fair price and give him screen credit. As if they had adapted his story to the screen. But, you know, from the point of view of how it got made, that's not what happened. Instead, they wrote something and then it turned out to be really similar. And so it probably was subconsciously adapted. But as far as the approaching Brown and paying the money and so forth, they treated it as though they just took it, you know, went to him and, we want to use your story. So they took the uh, they took the first treatment to Stan Robertson uh, at NBC, and of course he was like, "I love this thing." Uh, I think he says, uh, "I think this is really one of the uh, superior Star Trek story outlines that I have received to date. This is action adventure as it's at its exciting best." He said. So uh, other elements from the script that did not result from the uh, subconscious uh, were uh, the Metrons were of course named after Metatron, the angel of Judaism. Uh, the you know the uh, the voice of God in Greek the word translates and it sorry uh, it, it, in, I, I it's it. it's relevant that we are seeing super beings yeah. again really for the first time you know so we had Charlie X in the cage and then of course we had our who's the guy oh the Trelane yeah yeah so and the Telosians in in a way from the pilot yeah so. Um, you know the Telosians, and, and, and so like in the cage, it's a very similar story in the sense that you've got super beings who hijacked a crew and test them and figure out whether or not they're worthy. In the case of Pike, it was more like because they had a breeding program and they wanted him to be part of their new population. In the case of Kirk, it's you know is his species evil and brutal right. and primitive. But otherwise, super beings come along, put us in a weird scenario. So Cestus Three, which was the name of the outpost, was taken from the Latin word cestus, which is a form of boxing glove worn by gladiators in, in an arena. So that's kind of fun. Also, NBC Standards and Practice uh, had some changes that they wanted to make to the show. Uh, page one, for instance, right at the beginning says... that. That Gorn, that Gorn is going blue too much. He's got to tone it down. That's right. <laughs> it's a family uh, show. Number one was uh, please keep to a minimum the number of bodies seen in the destroyed areas. So uh, actually, as you look, you barely see any. You just see the uh, wounded uh, lieutenant. Yeah, we are totally in the world before Peck and Paw, aren't we? So, you know, in the Westerns, guy gets shot, he falls over, as opposed to Peck and Paw. Right. Blood's everywhere. You're like indulging in the gore. So if they made this today, you'd see, you know, we'd see body parts. You'd see, you know, corpses everywhere. True. I mean, even look at, like, you know, what Discovery did, you know. Yeah. Page two has caution on the makeup of the of the wounded lieutenant so that his injuries are not unduly alarming. Page <laughs> three. I know. I love that one, too. Page three says caution on the death ray of the security guard so that his dice disintegration is not grotesque. I assume that uh, Dr. McCoy will use his air hiss device for the injection, but if a needle type is used, please do not show this on camera. So these are the kind of ridiculous notes they're getting from NBC. So you can Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, everything that we kind of joke about when it comes to, you know, 1966 Star Trek also has to do with the fact that it's 1966. You know, it's like... These are things that we are not allowed to show on television. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it makes for an antiseptic and almost sterile, you know, kind of presentation. We're supposed to be looking at a planet where the colony's been destroyed. And instead what we get is abandoned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A smoking building. Yeah. Right out of uh, yeah, right out of Walking Dead or something. Arena is also the first episode to refer to the Earth Space Alliance as the Federation. That's another contribution from from Kuhn, who also gave us, you know, a few episodes back Starfleet. So uh, you're going to really see Kuhn's influence really taking over on the, uh, you know, on Star Trek. Another funny story is that uh, because it was November when they were filming, uh, Shatner wore thermal underwear underneath his costume. And uh, there are times when you can see his sleeves, uh, see this long johns peeking out through his sleeves. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, about uh, the uh, you know the where we where they filmed there at Vasquez Rocks. Sure. So of course, not only is it November and it's kind of chilly, but they've decided to go up into the mountains. Right. So they're at the Vasquez Rocks, which separate the uh, high desert of the of the Mojave from the San Fernando Valley, which is really kind of part of the Los Angeles area. So this area isn't very far from from the studios. It's it's it, it the, this ridge. It's been pushed up. It's tw- it's a twenty five million year old sedimentary layer forced up by the collision of the Pacific Plate and the North Atlantic Plate, and that gives it this very cool look, in which you have this highly tilted sedimentary layers just jutting out at this crazy angle. And so. It's so cool, this appearance. It has been used in 58 different movies. It's been used in dozens and dozens of TV shows. It's been used not only in this episode, but in the very next episode, the alternative factor that they shot. So apparently they were out there for two weeks shooting things at Kirk Shock. But we also saw it in the past. This is where Kirk fought Finnegan. And uh, it will it will reappear from time to time as uh, as Vulcan Landscape. So if you were to, to Google it as Kirk's Rock, it shows up. I mean, you, you find it, even though technically it's called the, the Vasquez Rocks. So it's cool. That's certainly one of the reasons to go and shoot on location here. The other reason is that it's close. It is, as I mentioned, about 30 miles away from the studios. And that means that according to union rules, you don't have to pay all the extra things that you would for going on location. It's like shooting in the city. And so... You know, the actors are kind of on their own to get home or to have dinner. The studio doesn't have to put them up or to feed them when they're not on the set. And so it's one of the reasons that we see this this over and over again is that it's convenient, it's inexpensive, and it's cool. <laughs> All great reasons. We're going to see this uh, again in Star Trek Four, in Star Trek Generations, in the Star Trek reboot, and... It appears in every Star Trek series except for DS9. You know, it's funny. As much as I hated the death of Kirk in Generations, it is kind of appropriate that it happened at Vasquez Rocks. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Oh, also, I uh, looked up uh, Peckinpah, and uh, the Wild Bunch came out in 69. So we are pre-Peckinpah at this point. And then, you know, in a certain sense, you know, that kind of new realism, that gritty... And, of course, it's a hyper-realism, right? So it's not right. realism with a small R. It's realism with a capital R. Mm-hmm. 
We've been living in a sanitized past. Now we're going to show you the blood. We get Bonnie and Clyde. We get a lot of movies in the early 70s that indulge in this kind of stuff, which ultimately leads us to kind of a Tarantino approach to... I was going to say. Yeah, to making movies. This kind of stylized violence. Yeah. Well, that's what he grew up on, too. I mean, he'll point to that every day of the week. But we're still in the world of stylized sterility. Right. Well, luckily, we uh, there's also for them, uh, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg on the horizon. So uh, mm-hmm. all that will soon change. All right. Well, that's all I got as far as behind the scenes. So you know what that means. Let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So we start off with the Enterprise orbiting Cestus Three. Uh, funny thing about this is that in the original non-remastered version of this, it is a uh, it was just a picture of a globe, which is exactly what they did on Miri too. Remember when we had that weird shot of Earth without the clouds yeah. and everything? Yep, that's because it was just a shot of a globe. Uh, but what they did with Cestus Three is that they uh, printed the the uh, the film backwards so that it looked different, and they also uh, tinted it all a hazy orange. So. It was less recognizable as Earth and looked like a, a whole other planet. So we get some uh, fun banter going on here between uh, Kirk and Bones, you know, talking about how awesome the Commodore is and how they can't wait to eat some non-re... I was going to say regurgitated food. <laughs> <laughs> not, not non-regurgitated food, but uh, anyway... <laughs> Reconstituted. <laughs> Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, so uh, suddenly uh, we hear the Commodore hail them. He says uh, he wants them to bring down their best tactical people as well. Uh, Spock questions that, saying, "Why would they? Why would he need that?" Bone says, "Isn't it enough to know how great a host he is?" And then Spock calls him a sensualist. To which Bones so replies, is- "You better believe it." <laughs> This is meant to be an insult by Spock, right? Right, exactly. The man of reason. But McCoy throws it right back at him by embracing it entirely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. So uh, they finally beam down to the planet. They get to Cestus Three, and they find out it has been destroyed. Dun, dun, dun. Titles. Interesting to look at this tactical team. Because if this is his best tactical team, it doesn't, for example, include Sulu. True. It's got Spock and McCoy, not who you'd think of the tactical guys. Right. And then a guy in red, a guy in blue, and a guy in yellow. Oh, yeah. This is his tactical the... team? <laughs> I guess. I think he just brought down whoever he was going to bring down originally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And no, left they're Sulu fine. And, yeah. Left Sulu and whoever else you'd think of as tactical back on the ship. So we come back from the titles, and we find out that they, uh, they're they taking coverage behind something. I don't know. Is this a giant boulder? Is this some kind of monument? We can't really tell. It's annoying. Uh, they, they, they conclude that the communications, including the ones that brought them there, must have been faked. Then we get our first captain's log. Stardate 3045.6. I feel like we've come a long way from those first couple, like, Mantrap episodes that were, like, 145, one. Yeah. It's been quite a quite a quite a jump. It's funny that you mentioned the man trap because uh you know when I think of the episodes, you know what what's going on here? 
is it a super being episode? The Man Trap is a monster episode, right? Mm-hmm. And by monster, I'm invoking the kind of you know old movie in which you've got this monster that you need to fight. Now, obviously, in Star Trek terms, these are all aliens. But some aliens we talk to and some aliens we fight. And aliens that we fight that we never see, you know, again, that are, like in the Man Trap, they're basically monsters. And the Gorn, I think, was made to be a monster episode. Yeah. I don't think they necessarily anticipated that the Gorn would live on as a, a you know, having the Gorn hegemony in this rival. You know, in uh, Starfleet Battles, which was a game that came out, you know, tactical combat with ships, the Gorn was a, re- you know, it's like one of the six major powers. Wow. In the same way that today, you know, if you were to make a game, you, well, we've got to have the Cardassians, and at some point you kind of run out of power. Well, how about the Ferengi? You know, they've got ships, they've got some whatever. The Gorn was in that role back in the 70s. Well, you got the Klingons and Rimals, of course. We, who else? Uh, Gorn? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds good. But I think this was made as a monster episode. Kind of like in the uh, old days of the original X-Files episode when they used to do a monster of the week or something like that. Yeah. Or, or the old, uh, <laughs> or the old uh, Smallville episodes, you know, the kryptonite creature of the week or whatever. That was what this uh, episode was like in your mind anyway. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, just look at the, the costume that they put him in. You know what I mean? Big sharp, sharp fangs and, you know, can't be killed. In in one of the drafts, there was a, a they were supposed to throw a spear at him, but the spear was supposed to like bounce off him to show how tough he is. I mean, they do that fine in the rest of the episode, like you know, things just like like the giant boulder that we'll get to, <laughs> it just rolls on top of him. But as though we're like made of foam. Yeah, weird. Or pumice. So uh, they find a they find a survivor. Uh, he's not really, you know, coherent yet. But his makeup is not alarming. No, that's good. <laughs> Spock finds a finds another life sign, but this one is not warm blooded. He says, and then suddenly uh, O'Hurley is taken out somehow by a bomb or uh, some kind of disintegration beam. We don't really know. It's not very clear. But he just suddenly disappears. Yeah. So this is this is just disruptor technology. Yeah. It will become. So this is the first time we see it used, and it's being used by the Gorn. The other people who ultimately use disruptors are the Romulans and the Klingons. And the way they show it is, you know, this the light, and then you're just gone. Yeah, Later on in the movies, the disruptor will, will look a little more disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Funny side note here, Jerry Ayers, uh, he was 30 here playing Ensign O'Hurley. He's the redshirt, like I said, who dies on the planet. He is resurrected again to play another Ensign, Ensign Rizzo, in the uh, episode Obsession, where he again dons a redshirt and then again dies. So, Yeah, so we have, like, the three guys who are basically functioning as redshirts. We don't know their names. Yeah. I mean, we, we know, we've, we've heard them one time or this kind of thing. Yeah. It's not like, oh, it's, it's you know, the guy who's been on this many times. I remember when he sang crazy songs in that one episode. <laughs> exactly. So, but they're in the three different colored shirts. Yep. They're not... We haven't established the trope of the red shirt yet. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you go out and you do the math, you realize that the season of red shirts is season two. That's when all the red shirts die. In season one here, it's still guys in blue and yellow who die the most. Oh, interesting. And in fact, in addition to 
our guy in red, we're going to have a guy in... Uh, I forget I get, forget which one dies, the, either the gold or the blue, but we'll get one of those guys die as well. So uh, Kirk calls up to the ship to try and beam out, but they too are under attack. Keep those screens up, he says. We'll hold out here. There's no way out. They can't get off the they can't get off the ship. Bombs falling. They take refuge under the main building. Spock suggests uh, that maybe we should go to the high ground towards Vasquez Rocks and get the hell out of there. But Kirk decides he's going to head out to the armory instead. Uh, we go back to the ship. So the guy who's sitting at the navigator station here uh, was the guy who was Pike stand-in for uh, the Menagerie episode. The guy who was all like makeuped up to be all burnt and stuff. So he plays this uh, this navigator, whose name I have written down later. <laughs> so yeah, that's him. Uh, the ship is still under fire, and they fire for the first time the photon torpedoes. One of my favorite sound effects. I love the photon sound effect. Although I think our phaser sound effects are still a little bit unusual. Are they? I don't know. I didn't notice, but you could be right. Yeah, we're not getting that. Uh... Yeah, there's a particular sound that eventually just becomes the phaser sound, and we haven't yet quite discovered it. All right. So uh, they fire at the other ship. Nothing happens to the other ship. Kirk tells Sulu, protect my ship, even if it means leaving, which is exactly what they do. Sulu takes the ship and runs. Kirk makes... He gives him a lot of instructions from the planet. Shoot now, use this, yep. do that. And he doesn't even know what's going on out there. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And I think it's because, you know, as we've mentioned before, the studio wants Kirk to be the center mm-hmm. of the action. You know, if Sulu was up there flying the ship by himself, I think the, the studio's like, well, well, but the captain's our hero. So Spock decides he's going to join the captain too, and he runs, and... uh he, he, too, makes it to the armory. Now, another, uh, I, I, don't, I was going to say funny, but this isn't really a funny story, is that in these two things where both Spock and Kirk are running and all the bombs going off, a couple of the bombs exploded too loudly and too closely to the actors, and uh, Shatner ended up with uh, tinnitus in his ear. And so he was the one, he had all the, like, the ringing in his ear for the rest of his life. Spock, too... Had it, but it wasn't. Or, I mean, Nimoy had it too, but it wasn't a. Uh, it wasn't a constant thing, like it was for uh, for Shatner. So that's a. Uh, that's pretty amazing. It's all Star Trek's fault. Yeah. So uh, they set up a grenade launcher. They fire the grenade launcher, and it does uh, some considerable damage. It's really an argument for CGI, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It just like uh, they kind of. Oh, I'm sorry. You're saying the 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 tinnitus thing. Yeah, I mean, or this scene in particular. Let's put our expensive actors next to, or talented actors, or just these human beings next to some explosives because it'll look good on camera. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, also this, this, just the blowing up of this, of this uh, grenade. This, I don't know what it is. This nuke grenade or whatever it is. This little gem. as they fire it towards the mountains. Yeah, takes out everything. The unknown enemy disappears. And uh, their ship runs away. So they beam back up to the Enterprise, and Kirk decides he's going to pursue the unknown enemy. This is when we see uh, Kirk kind of at his, his most Lorca-like. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, 
He's yeah, he's got a I was going to say crazy, but I don't mean crazy. He's kind of uh one uh he's just focused on one thing in this one, you know. Yeah, he he's quite determined. It's, yes. And, and cuz by the end of this episode, obviously he's changed his mind. Right. But he realized I guess it's too cuz he realizes that they're doing the same thing that he was doing. Right. Now, yeah, they so our area, they took out our people. Yeah. But he's also confronted by the by the Metrons. True. And so I think draws on you know, a different way of thinking. So in the beginning, he's thinking, you know, if, if we don't give the Gorn the Vulcan hello, then they'll be back. Yeah, that's true. Can, can you can you tell this episode is now post-discovery? <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole new vocabulary for discussing Star Trek. Uh, that is so true. Uh, so they then question their one survivor. He tells them that the unknown enemy had approached Cestus three. With the usual space speed. <laughs> Whatever that is. Some of these terms. I and know. like the idea that they still need to put space in front of everything. I know. At the usual space speed. Yeah, how come you can't just say at the usual speed? Yeah, exactly. That would make sense. No, no, this was space speed. See, the, the, the way I go over there to get a sandwich... That's the usual speed. <laughs> but in space, the speeds are much faster because the distances are much greater. I don't want you to think it was, you know, coming at us at like three miles an hour. No, no. No, no, it was, it was much faster. It was the space speed. The usual space speed. <laughs> he says we welcomed them, but they attacked us anyway. We tried to surrender, saying that we had women and children, but it didn't stop them. They kept firing. Kirk immediately suspects invasion. Spock tries to dissuade this, but Kirk insists upon it. So, so you know, let, let's uh, compare and contrast here. Okay. We get a scene like this in Discovery, in which the Klingons are bombarding the planet that, that is key to the Dilithium production. And we get to see some kind of brutal, you know, women and children huddling in fear. Yeah. Explosions. You know, it looks like it's you know very serious, and of course, in this because it's 1966, hmm. we get a deserted town with one guy whose makeup can't be too disturbing. <laughs> right. Although you know, it's funny in this scene. I think his makeup looks great. You know, yeah. actually, it does look like it's some sort of peeling or something bad is happening there. So, considering it looks good. Yeah, we, we don't get, like, half his face was ripped off or, you know, the kind of stuff that you might... <laughs> yeah, exactly. ...depending on who was making it today. <laughs> like, uh... Oh, you're in bad shape, Jones. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, Scotty's nephew or whatever in Rathacon, whose, like, face is mm -hmm. all, like, half-crusty or whatever. Yeah, it's more serious. And then there's blood everywhere, Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, Mr. Scott is bloody. Kirk then has the bloody handprint on his uniform. Yep. Yeah. So, Kirk decides they must follow the unknown vessel... So they, uh, they go to Red Alert, and then the TV goes to commercial. Back at it, we are in unknown space. Warp 7 could be sustained, but it could be dangerous. Both Scotty and Spock warn Kirk. Yeah, so here we've kind of established the upper limit of how fast the ship can go. So they're still kind of working things out, but Warp 4 is kind of the top speed of the ship almost indefinitely. Although they go places an awful lot at warp one. Mm -hmm. Warp six 
it seems to be the fastest that they can sustain for long periods of time. But nobody gets really worried when they go to warp 6. But you do get the impression that they can't just do it like they can with warp 4. Right. And then warp 7, of course, whenever they go to warp 7, this is the time in which they all invoke, uh-oh, we, we can't, you know, sustain this very long. And then, of course, there's warp 9, which they seem to be able to do for, like, just long enough to get the ship out of danger. Right, exactly. Let's get the hell out of here. Uh, Spock is still concerned about uh, Kirk's insistent on following the, go- the Gorn, but Kirk still won't hear it. We can't keep letting them attack us. Out here, we are the only policemen around. Yeah, so his arguments, not, not only is his behavior in the sense that he's going to be very aggressive, Lorca-like, mm-hmm. but his arguments are very similar as well. It's funny, too, because when uh, Shatner delivers that line about uh, out here, we're the only policemen around, he's, uh, he's softening, you know what I mean? He's trying, to, like, he's trying to, like, ingratiate his first officer into, like, hey, you know, this is kind of it. You know, he's trying a little charm, a little, like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. less demanding of, like, we can't keep letting them attack us. Uh, you know, out here, we're the only ones, people, you know, the only policemen out here, so... Spock asks for regard of sentient life. So the ship is maintaining at warp seven, but then so is uh, so is the uh, the enemy ship. So Kirk falls calls for warp eight, and everybody looks at him like he's nuts. They're closing in on the target. So we, uh, th- then we get this weird like cutscene where we just cut to space for a minute, and then we cut back to uh, to the episode. Sulu announces that they are closing in on the target, and uh, he appears to be quite happy with himself that they are. You know, he's like, "Yeah, we're doing it. All right." Uh, oh, DePaul—that's the name of the navigator—sees uh, the solar system uh, out to the distance. It's undiscovered before now, and the aliens are not heading along that heading. In fact, they seem to be growing away from it. Sensors then report that they are being scanned from that solar system, and the intensity of the scan is growing. Then, all of a sudden, the alien spacecraft slows down to a stop. It appears to be dead in space. Kirk Kirk now appears happy at these events. He readies his phasers again for the third time. (laughs) It's the third time in, like, three scenes where he's like, okay, I just want the phasers to be ready, you know? And they're down there like, okay, we've been ready, Captain. We've just been sitting here waiting to fire. What are you talking about? We're ready. They're ready. We're ready. And the distance gets closer. As, Sulu, as Sulu's deep baritone counts it off for us. 170 meters. 165 meters. 160 meters. That guy likes to count backwards. He sure does. He does it a lot. Suddenly, the Enterprise is dead in the water, too. <laughs> it's amazing. They've gone from warp 8 to no warp at all. All the circuits are fine. There's been no ascertainable damage, but they are just dead in the water. And then they are hailed, sort of. It's the Metrons. They said two ships have entered our space here to cause violence. The Metrons have decided that they are going to end the violence their way. The captains of each ship will be brought down to a planet and will battle it out. The winner will be allowed to to leave, but the loser, their ship will be destroyed. And then the captain is taken and dropped on the planet. Dun, dun, dun. There stands the Gorn captain who growls at Kirk. Commercial. So it's funny here because uh, the Gorn also blinks. 
It's like it's one of their like remastered CGI things. You know, they did the same thing oh. with the Ewoks, too. So, uh, oh, yeah, it's fine for me. I don't care. It works. Makes it look like it's less of a mask that way. Yeah, I mean, so one of the problems with the Gorn is it totally feels like a costume. <laughs> yes. Right. And that there's a human underneath it. Yeah, or, you know, just everything about it feels like we're watching 60s kind of, you know, you imagine that if, if we saw Gorn in a current movie or whatever, that he'd be all CGI and... Look like a real lizard. He'd be moving more like Snoke or, yeah, or Golem or... Well, even if he had kind of Gorn-like body construction, the way he moved, you know, would would feel naturalistic or, you know, maybe lizard-like rather than guy in a giant costume. Lumbering slowly, (laughs) swinging his fists slowly. I mean, it was like everything he did was like... Michael Myers or somebody coming after you, just like, doesn't matter how fast I go, I will get you. It's funny that you mention, so this was shot in November, which means it was kind of chilly and Kirk's wearing the the underwear. Yeah. So he, I, when I was watching, I'm like, it's sunny and bright there. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't that lizard guy get warmed up by the sun and be able to move quickly and threateningly? Shouldn't one of Kirk's responses be, I should fight him at night? <laughs> yeah, right. And when his cold blood will make him vulnerable. But now that it's, you know, it's revealed that it's November, there may have been, like, onset knowledge that it's cold here. The lizard should move slowly. And we as the audience never get told that it's cold. Well, no, that's fair. And, and so, because I'm sitting there wondering, how come he's moving so slow? It looks sunny and bright. He ought to be perfectly capable of running around. Right. And it's only with the revelation that it's November that I'm like, ah, that's why he's so slow. So uh, back at it, we get another captain's log here. Kirk is dealing with his dread of lizards. So now we have his, uh, you know, <laughs> his bond phobia of spiders, I guess. You know, it's like bond lizards. and spiders. Why did it have to be lizards? <laughs> yeah, right, or Indian snakes. Good call. <laughs> He's dealing with that, but also trying to remember that he, too, is a captain of a ship and sentient. The fight begins. It appears to be much tougher than Kirk. And then it picks up a big rock, and he hurls it at Kirk. Back on the Enterprise, Spock offers Scotty some things to try. But Scotty has already tried them, even without asking the person in charge. He goes to Uhura, who says... He's he's second command on that ship. Well, that's true. Uh, Scanners can tell us nothing about uh, who's holding them there. Back down on the planet, Kirk makes a, a log entry for posterity. And yet somehow the Gorn can hear him because it's some sort of handheld universal translator or something. This is the first time that we see the universal translator. Yeah. And it's provided to them by the, by the Metrons. I guess he got to take it home. I don't know. Souvenir. Yeah, exactly. But it's funny because this log entry that he gives for posterity, like there's no new information given. In this one, you know, it's just like he just—he's just talking about everything that we've already seen happen. So you're like, okay, well, you know, wasted scene. Here we go. I kind of feel like, you know, so this is an era in which a lot of times our statistics are well, they won their second half hour mm. because people tuned in from watching this other there, thing. That's good in the first half hour, and it's almost like I. This is for those of you who just tuned in. Yep. Let me recap briefly what's going on. 
Back on the ship, uh, Bones just assumes that Spock is doing nothing to help the captain, as always. <laughs> but we've got to save the captain. And then Spock is like, well, there's a lot of space to search between here. And even if we try to do so, we're kind of stuck. So you should just shut up. That's basically what uh, Spock <laughs> says to him. <laughs> Not in those words. We see both the Gorn and Kirk are trying to use the planet to help them. Uh, Kirk finds some diamonds, which is the hardest substance in the universe, besides whatever their ships are made out of. Um, Kirk. Yeah, I can't imagine the diamonds are. I think today we are finding materials harder than diamond. Yeah. Uh, Kirk finds that Gorn is working, <laughs> is working on a pointy stick. <laughs> That's what I wrote down. <laughs> Kirk, is, <laughs> Kirk finds the Gorn working on a pointy stick. It's actually like some kind of rock or like some kind of gemstone or something. But anyway, uh, he then sees the big boulder up on uh, top of the mountain and he tries to uh, drop it on the Gorn. So he pushes it over the edge and the boulder hits the Gorn and it lies underneath. And Kirk runs down to see, to see the dead Gorn. Oh, but he's not dead. He's not dead. He gets up. He pushes the boulder off of him and stands. Kirk runs away, but only to get into the Gorn's trap. Stuck in vines and under a boulder, the Gorn raises his mighty pointy stick, and we go to commercial. Back to it. The Gorn comes ever closer to Kirk, but the Gorn has lifted the... Lifted the... <laughs> Sorry. The Gorn comes ever closer to Kirk, raising his giant stick. But then he kind of has to like move the boulder to get to Kirk, and then that just gets Kirk free. So then Kirk lunges away and, and runs off. Whew, good thing he had to move that boulder. Otherwise, Kirk would have been in trouble. Kirk now, yeah, though. He just poked at him for a while while he was <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Kirk is now limping and uh, attempts to get away from the Gorn. He still manages to be faster. Meanwhile, Spock attempts to, uh, to talk to the Metrons, but nothing happens. Back on the planet, Kirk is still limping. Uh, he finds sulfur, but he doesn't know what to do with it. He's, he's reminded of something, but can't figure out what it is. He starts off again as the Gorn l lumbers toward him. Back up on the ship, Bones can't understand that with all their technology, they are so stuck. And then the Metrons t call them. They announce to the Enterprise crew that Kirk is losing, and they should make whatever memorials their culture see fits. So it's funny here because, like, I mean, I, I guess they don't, they don't know who they're dealing with, but this could have been a nice thought to be like, well, you know, we're a pretty multicultural uh, ship. Uh, you know, I don't believe in any kind of, uh, you know, metaphysical or, you know, any kind of like superior being to pray to. Uh, you know, maybe Uhura over here has a different idea. You know, Scotty's uh, probably a Protestant of some kind. Uh, Bones has this like Southern Baptist upgreaming. You know, we're not all praying the same way. You should take this into consideration. You know, like something like that could, uh, could have been yeah. said. Uh, Bones makes his appeal, uh, but the Metrons feel that the humans, uh, I guess with Spock and lumped into that, are uh, too violent and that their barbarism must mean that they die. Uh, but that uh, perhaps the crew would like to see what is happening with the Kirk and the Gorn. Spock is now the one to narrate what is happening with Kirk, to tell us about the potassium nitrate. Kirk runs off, but then the Gorn uses the universal translator here conveniently. The Gorn then says he, that he, has he destroyed the outpost on Cestus III because he thought that they were invaders and they had to kill the invaders. Kirk, now said, Kirk and Spock both realizing, oh. Bones even says, oh, were we in the wrong? Is that what happened? 
Although there's a certain amount of, you know, when you spot invaders, you just blast them rather than hailing them first or, hey, colonists, strange mammalian type. Yeah. Uh, this is our space. You have interloped. We really want you to leave now. Well, that was like, I, I mean, that was the next note I wrote is like, how were they supposed to know that that was Gorn space, right? I mean, did the Gorn put up signs anywhere? No, you know, Police. like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Did they, did they build some kind of fence? Did they, like, you know, sculpt their big ugly mugs into the side of a mountain? I mean, how are we supposed to know? Uh, but Spock says, uh, I guess we'll leave that to the, to the diplomats to figure out. Every time you appear at a new planet, you're like, scan for Mount Rushmore. Exactly. We see Kirk then uh, back to the bamboo tree at the beginning. Uh, underneath the bamboo tree, me honey. And he picks up a tube. Spock uh, encourages him, saying, yeah, good, good. Kirk then uses a rope. Spock narrates us that uh, now Kirk has to look for nitrate, and then sulfur, and then coal. He doesn't tell us what he's doing, but he has to find those things. Kirk then uh, finds all these things, and he puts them together as the soundtrack raises on. I love the music in this episode. So, uh, yeah, we, so we get our combat music that's introduced here. It will feature again very importantly in the Pon Far episode. Yeah, Amok Time. Beginning of the second season. Yeah. Yep. That's more of the dun 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 I don't think there's as much of Yes, yeah, so we're getting some of that, but it's not Right. Not quite as dramatic here, but it's it's I think it's the same piece of music. Oh, that would make sense. That would make sense. The Gorn continues his search for Kirk. Kirk packs up all the ingredients into the gun or whatever it is he's building. Uh, he then starts a fire. And he loads up what apparently now looks like a cannon to fire it. Luckily, the Gorn has found him and saw the fire or something. They conveniently stumbles on him at just the right moment. And boom, direct hit. Diamond stuck inside the Gorn. Kirk runs over and grabs the Gorn pointy stick and... No! No, I won't kill you, says Shatner, er, says Kirk. And then a Metron shows up. He, she, it, whatever it is, congratulates Kirk for showing mercy and is impressed. It says, you will not be destroyed. There is hope for your kind yet. Kirk then asks that the Gorn not be destroyed and perhaps that they can find some common ground. The Metron says, ah, oh, very good. Perhaps in a thousand years, the Metrons will have the humans, the Metrons and the humans will be able to talk. Kirk then suddenly arrives back on the ship. Having had a shower and everything, it's amazing. He looks fine. <laughs> Let's get out of here, he says. I thought he was going to talk to the Gorn, but I guess not. Back to Cestus Three, they decide to go. Kirk finds hope for the human race, even if Spock doesn't. The episode ends. So, yeah, I think later on, we would have some kind of first contact thing. Yeah. Because we know how to write that stuff now. <laughs> exactly. I think then they they would have been like, well, what do we say? I don't know. That will be awkward. Let's just not do it. We'll do it off screen. So uh, a couple other behind-the-scene notes here worth mentioning. Uh, first of all, uh, much like they did with the Telosians, uh, they cast a uh, female to play the Metron at the end, but then used a male voice. I think it works... I think it works less here than it did with the Telosians. I thought that was really cool. But I thought that that... It looked too much like it could be just a teenage boy, you know, the Metro. Right, you know. yeah. So 
Right. They could have. They should have done something a little more dramatic with it, but yeah, whatever. I think in this category we also have Clint Howard and yes, yes, exactly. Some weird voice. So the idea here is that we're gonna we're gonna mix up the look of the actor and the sound of the actor and make you think, well, people in space are different. Yeah. Their bodies and voices don't necessarily match the way we would expect them to. Look at how, how weird space is. Uh, the budget for this ambitious episode was set higher by producers than the norm at uh, $197,086. It came in right on budget. However, Joseph Pevney was given a uh, $500 bonus for uh, finishing a day early and coming in on budget. So actually, it was over budget at $197,586. So <laughs> that is that. The, bu- the, the bonuses go on a different line item. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, all right. That's all I got for this episode. It was a good one. It was a fun talking about. Anything else you got that we didn't hit? I think this is one of those classic episodes everybody remembers. It kind of sets the tone for a lot of Star Trek. You know, when uh, we see Kirk as the scientist, yep. not necessarily just as a military guy. or I mean, he's an explorer. He's, he's, a, he's interested in science. He sees science. He comes down on this planet. He right away realizes, hey, this would be a, a geologist's kind of dream planet. As you know, you'd expect him to be able to survey a scene and figure out, who do I want to send to survey this planet? As opposed to like, uh, pick some guys at random. Yeah. And so we see him solving problems in a very scientific way. We see him using the scientific method. And that's something that, you know, sometimes we overlook about Kirk, that he really is a scientist. Yeah. On top of all of his uh, diplomacy and, uh, and uh, tactical prowess. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, there's lots of ways that you can find us now. We have our own website. Look there. We've got, uh, we got a, a fun uh, Facebook page where we post fun stories as well. So come over there. We're on SoundCloud. We're on the iTunes. Pretty much wherever you want to find us, we'll be there for you. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm saying goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go, and we'll see you all next week.